Max Hetzel. Uh, Max Hetzel lived in Switzerland and was one of those craftsmen who made clocks. Now, the Swiss, the Swiss I suppose, are, are known for several things, right? I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of things that the Swiss are known for in Switzerland. Maybe things like international banking or things like a country that somehow remained neutral through 20th century wars. Or maybe you think of that cheese that's just right on a ham sandwich. Or maybe you think of those tiny pocket knives with like 75 different tools inside of them, right? Several things that you may associate with the Swiss or Switzerland. One of the things I associate with Switzerland is it's where my favorite theologian, John Calvin, pastored a church in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, for many years. But also among that, things that the Swiss are known for are clocks. That there was a time when the Swiss people sort of had this cottage industry of making the best clocks and watches that could be found in the world. And even before a time that when a watch was something you put on your wrist, remember when it was a thing attached to a little chain that you kept in a vest pocket, that kind of a thing? The Swiss were so good at making those. And because of the way Switzerland is laid out, it's sort of this mountainous country. So you didn't have these big populated cities, but you had people scattered and dispersed all about. So it was kind of this trade that the people there knew how to do. And there were these skilled artisans among them who knew how to put together these clocks and watches in ways that kept very precise and accurate time. There was a guild of them that came together and and they sort of all worked together on that to, to make all the different gears and springs and resistors that were needed so that the clocks and watches they produced would be the very best in the world. Well, Max Hetzel was one of those Swiss clock-making engineers. And in 1954, Max Hetzel discovered something. Discovered that quartz could be used to power a clock or a wristwatch. And what Max Hetzel did then is he honed this technology because he discovered that quartz, when it powered one of those watches, he could get a a really small miniature tuning fork to resonate at exactly 360 hertz, which turned out to be exactly the frequency that was needed to power the gears in a wristwatch at an extremely steady rate, like had never been done before. He worked on that, and by 1960, Max Hetzel discovered that he developed a a watch that could keep accurate time within 12 seconds per year, something that was unheard of in the clock industry at that time, right? So Max Hetzel developed this and and grew with that and, and shared that among the guild there and brought to them an idea that forever changed the clock and watchmaking industry among these artisans in Switzerland. It was a new way of doing things. He could develop a way of making clocks and watches that were infinitely less complicated because they had so many fewer gears inside of them and could be so much more accurate than anything they had ever made before and could be produced so much more inexpensively than anything before. It was a new paradigm something that forever changed people who made clocks and watches. They couldn't go back after that because this new standard was there in front of them, and now they had to adjust and live with that. 
We'll see something like that that works through in this passage that we're studying. So we've been going through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, through this season of Lent. And Hebrews, if you've been with us, focuses on the priests, the Old Testament priests as they existed in Israel, and how Jesus then came to be the new priest, the better priest, a standard, a standard that would forever change everything they knew about the way they did things before among priests. So today I'm going to keep moving forward with that, and today's passage comes from chapter 7. Now, we've mentioned this guy Melchizedek before, because he's come up in the book of Hebrews before, but I've kind of uh, pushed that one down the road without much explanation. Today we're going to talk about that. Who is Melchizedek, and how does that play into what the author of Hebrews has to say about Jesus and the priests among Israel, okay? Hebrews 7, and I'm going to start at verse 11. Here's what he writes. If perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people to establish that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to the tribe of Moses, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation, as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when, he said, when God said to him, The Lord has sworn, and it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become a guarantor of the better covenant Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath, which came after the law, 
appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A paradigm shift, right? A standard that's been changed. A standard that had been lived with among the people for so long. And maybe we need to remind ourselves of that in in this story of Hebrews. The reminder that the author of Hebrews writes this letter to Jewish Christians. People who had lived up with, who had grown up living with that Old Testament law. Who grew up knowing all of those patterns that were part of their religious tradition, their standard that the priests would have to purify themselves and then offer these sacrifices, and they would do this over and over and over again, and that was the way they lived in this continual cycle of making things right with God again. Now, I think we know a little something of standards like that, right? Things that you have to keep doing again and again and again, because even though it's a habit or a part of what you do, it seems like you have to keep going back to it. Let me give you an example. Why does it always seem to rain right after I wash my car, right? I just have to keep doing that again and again. Why does it snow right after I shovel the driveway or the plow comes through right after I clear the driveway? It's one of those things that we do, but it kind of seems futile because we just have to keep doing it again and again and again. Why does somebody spill in the kitchen right after it's been cleaned up, right? Sometimes that that comment will be heard in my house. Can I please have a clean kitchen for just five minutes, (laughs) right? That would just feel so nice. But we live in a world where, let's admit it, we've got some things and some habits and some patterns that we've just got to keep doing again and again and again because even though you work at it and you do it, it doesn't last. It doesn't stick. It doesn't stay forever. So that's the kind of world we live in. And that was the kind of world that the Old Testament Israelites lived in in regards to being right with God, right? To to be righteous before God was something that they had to keep doing again and again and again. That was the paradigm. That was the pattern. That was the standard that they had to live by. So that's what they did. They kept going after those rituals and those habits to be repeated again and again and again because it didn't last. And, and there was for them, laid out in the Old Testament, this very carefully regimented way of how they went about doing that. This was part of their religious identity, right? This is, this is what gave them some of their identity with God, that God accepted them as his people because they would keep doing these things again and again and again. And then comes Jesus, and there's this new standard, a different standard. Now, I imagine for those people who would read this, this letter that comes to the Hebrews, maybe there's part of that 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 stings a little bit, right? When it says in verse 18, the old regulation was weak and useless because the law can make nothing perfect. Imagine that. Imagine that the thing that gave you your identity with God, the thing that was so meaningful that was part of your life all growing up, that someone comes along and says, that thing that you do that makes you so important with God, that you're right with God again, that's weak. That's useless. That does not have power for perfection. 
Everything that you've been doing your entire life is part of your habit of what makes you a person who follows God now is a different paradigm. It switches. It's something new, something better, something that can never go back. I imagine they had a hard time accepting that. So the author of Hebrews brings it back to another connection from the Old Testament that helps make sense of it. This guy, Melchizedek. Maybe you don't know who Melchizedek is. I mean, it's not one of those things that's a, that you learn about often in Sunday school, if ever, right? It's certainly a person that doesn't show up very often in Scripture at all. So let's, let's figure out who Melchizedek is and what this means for us. Now, this comes from Genesis, Genesis 14. Let me give a little bit of the setting around this. In Genesis 14, it's the time when Abraham is settling into the land of Canaan. He doesn't have possession of it yet. He lives in tents, and he's sort of nomadic. Now, when Abraham came into the land of Canaan, one of his relatives came with him, his nephew, Lot. There was a, there was a point in time when Abraham and Lot decided who was going to settle where because they were both accumulating so much wealth and cattle and, and people and all of that, that that they couldn't all stay in the same place. So here's how that goes in Genesis. Abraham decides to, send, to settle in sort of the, the hill country, and Lot settles in the valley, the valley where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are located. Well, there, take, there comes along in Genesis 14, you read, of four kings, kings from other surrounding areas, that all band together and form this super alliance, and they go through and they conquer and plunder some of those areas. They go through the area, that valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and they attack it, and they plunder it, and they end up carrying off as slaves Lot and his whole family, Okay? That's the setting behind this, and here's where it picks up then, okay? So I'm, I'm going to read a few verses. It'll be on the screen here from Genesis 14, beginning at verse 11, about how Abraham responded to these four kings who came through and swept everything away and took away Lot. Genesis 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anur, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him, in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. 
creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's where Melchizedek shows up. Right? That's, that's the story of how Melchizedek comes into the life of Israel. King of Salem and priest of God, and we don't know much of his background outside of that. He shows up, he prepares this little meal, and, and he pronounces a two-sentence blessing for Abram. And from there, we don't know where it goes. We don't know how his priesthood continues or, or how it was passed on, if at all, what happened after that. He just shows up and gives this blessing and then it's done, right? A blessing that comes to Abram once and only once. And once was enough. And we, we don't read anywhere else in Genesis where Melchizedek had to keep coming back again and again and blessing Abram again and again. What we infer from that is the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abram was a blessing that stuck, right? It took hold. It's a blessing that remained, a blessing that didn't go away. That he shows up once, he gives the blessing once, and once was all that was needed. It remained with Abram forever. And it was a blessing that passed down through Abram's descendants to the people of Israel. I think that's the connection here that the author of Hebrews is making when he connects Jesus to Melchizedek. Right? He, he's highlighting for us, the author of Hebrews is highlighting for us the difference, the difference in the way that the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that would keep doing these things over and over and over again, would never be complete. But even from Israel's history, there was this one other priest, this one other guy, Melchizedek. And you know what? He only had to do this once. He shows up, he pronounces the blessing once, and once was enough, and he was that priest forever through that blessing. So the author of Hebrews makes that connection. Yeah, Jesus is a priest like that. Like that, not the one that has to keep doing these things over and over, but, but like Melchizedek where he shows up and he does what is necessary to bless his people once. And once is enough because once covers. Covers all the people God is calling to himself. All the people that God had called to himself in the past before. All the people that were around when Jesus was living and all the people that would come after who respond to God and come to God in faith. That one sacrifice of Jesus was enough. The standard. The standard restored. Right? That standard that came way back in Genesis, now restored in Jesus. The priest through whom once is enough. And God saves not only saves, but verse 25 in the passage we read today says completely, right? That this is a complete salvation. That we are saved completely. Now, 
I, I see a little bit of the disconnect here because, because as you read through Hebrews, and if you've been following our, our reading pattern for this, that we're reading through Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews through Lent, maybe you're picking up on the idea that the author of Hebrews is really hammering away at the same ideas again and again and again with this standard of Jesus being the new high priest. He has to keep going after that and not let that go. And, and it makes me sort of think that, all right, at least for the Jewish Christians, they had a hard time wrapping their heads around this. That's why he has to keep talking about it over and over and over again. I wonder how that plays out, right? That, all right, maybe they accepted the teaching of Jesus. Maybe they accepted faith in Jesus. Yes, I believe that Jesus is fully divine, fully human, the Son of God, come and lived a perfect life and died for us in our sins and was raised again to new life. I believe all of that. But then comes the next step of how is my life different because of it? Wait, wait, so, so I can believe that, but now you're saying everything about my identity with God and the habits and the rituals and the patterns that go, that all has to change now too? I mean, having the belief in my head and in my heart, I, I can make that leap, but to change all the patterns in the way I live, that's something else. That's a whole nother step. We don't change habits and patterns and rituals very easily. We're kind of used to living the way that we live and to be presented with something new, different, better. That's not always easy to do. You get that sense here when you read through Hebrews that the author of Hebrews is really going back to that again and again to make that point, to drive that one home. They were okay believing everything about Jesus, but not okay integrating that belief with their everyday habits and routines and patterns. We live in a world that operates by patterns and habits and routines as well. We live in a world that establishes standards. Standards. You know the standards of our world. You know the standards that we live within, right? It doesn't matter who you are, whether you work a job or you're a student in school or you're retired and you go about through different social settings or whatever that may be. You know there's standards out there. Standards in the world that we live in are standards where it feels like we always have to meet up to some measure of approval, right? A standard of approval. Whether I work a job or I'm a student in school, I go to work day after day or I go to class day after day and there's a standard that's set there and I have to do the work to meet the approval within that standard. That's the world we live in. That's what we go out to and we live in every day out of this place. That's our routine. That's our habit. That's our ritual. That was the habit and routine and ritual of these Old Testament Israelites too and having to, with the priests, come back to God again and again. You have to keep working to measure up to that standard that's out there. And then comes Jesus. And now the standard is completely different, right? The standard has changed. Yeah, it's still a standard of approval with God, but we're not the ones who work at it anymore. 
We don't have to keep doing that again and again and again to prove ourselves up to that standard. Jesus, our priest, has done that once. Once was enough. And now we live within that forever. I think it gives meaning to these words that Jesus says in Matthew 11, right? When Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think that's what Jesus is referring to in those words, right? He's referring to that standard that we think in our world we just have to keep going and measuring up to again and again and again and again. And we think we need that same standard with God, like we have to do that with God too, like they did in the Old Testament. But Jesus came and said, you know what? That's not how it is anymore. That's not the standard anymore. You rest in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the standard now. That's what has come to us now. That's how we live now. And the author of Hebrews says it's complete. That we live within that completely. Right? It's not this measure of, well, maybe a little bit, or maybe I, maybe I can, you know, on Sunday when I'm in church, I, I can rest in that grace, but the world I go out and live in day after day, that, that's a different world. Now it's complete. It defines who we are with God now. And because it defines who we are with God, it defines who we are as people in this world too. It's who we are. I think that's why Paul can write in Romans 8, he can write, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Complete, right? That we are saved by Jesus completely once. Once is enough. And once, and it is forever in effect to who we are. And that presents us with a new standard, a new paradigm, a new way to live as God's people, not just here in church, but in our lives outside of here too, in who we are. A new standard, a new way to live, a new people that are completely embraced in the love of God. You know, with Max, Max Hetzel, this Swiss clockmaker, here's how that story ends. He comes up with this radical new technology for making the best clocks and watches ever that keep much better time, are much less expensive to make. And the Swiss clockmaking guild took a look at it and they said, nope, no thanks. You see, because the Swiss Clockmaking Guild, we for generations have made clocks this way, not that way. We make it with springs and gears and resistors and all these intricate things, and that's the crap that we learned, and that's all we know, and because it's all we know, what you're coming up with is so different from that, no thanks. 
We want nothing to do with it. We'll stay with the old. We'll stay with that standard. Well, by the end of the 1960s, Max Hetzel had sold quartz technology to a Japanese company, Seiko. And starting in the 1970s, Seiko started making extremely inexpensive, extremely accurate wristwatches. Took over the industry. That was the end for the Swiss to dominate clocks and watches in the world. Because a standard came along that changed everything. And they said, no, we're just going to keep with the old thing we knew. Can't make that leap to what's new and better in that. They passed it by. Jesus came into the world and he offers a different standard, right? A standard where we don't have to keep trying to measure up to approval again and again and again with God, but it's once and for all with Jesus. Don't let it pass. Don't let that one pass by because it looks so different from the everyday world that we live in. Embrace that because it's the better way. It's the way that God makes for us. The way that we are forever his in his love. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and the instruction that we see in your word, for the way that you have called us to be yours. And Lord, we confess that even though we hear those stories and we acknowledge it, that yeah, sometimes we live in patterns and habits and rituals that struggle to embrace that paradigm of what it means to live in your love and what it means for us to be completely yours once and for all and to rest in that salvation. Lord, help us to see and know that again and renew our minds so that we may live in ways that live in that love, assured the complete salvation we have in you. Thank you for that. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.